The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. You're listening to the Back Home Network, presented by Homefield Apparel. Well, we're here. I'm Bob Motes. Welcome to X's and Joe's, a podcast dedicated to decoding the winning formula in college basketball. And I'm Mike Weemuth. Welcome you to episode four, Discovering the Sweet Spot, How a National Championship Winning Trend Was Exposed. So, Bob, in about 48 hours, we'll be sharing drinks and smokes together in Bloomington. Been a long time coming. I think the last time we did this, it was about a decade ago. Tom Crean was still coaching, and that's right. We were, um, and, and my, my 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 wife and I were still relative newlyweds, to be you know honest. I think it was the first time you met her, actually. I believe so. Yeah, that's right. So, oh, that is cool. So, so yeah, so we get a chance to we get a chance to go back to the to the to the sacred grounds and you know mm-hmm. pal around on Kirkwood for another for another evening or two and yeah. do what we do you know do what we do and yeah. looking forward to seeing not just you know not just the back home network crew but a lot of a lot of the fans of assembly call and maybe also X's and Joe's doing the work yeah. crimson cast and we get a chance to new, meet some new friends yeah no it'll be cool yeah I, I did I I logged on last night to uh assembly call in the post game and uh Yes, I learned that our rookie hazing rituals will actually commence this weekend. Is that correct? So, uh, you know, this is why I needed more adult supervision, honestly. And that's why you do the negotiating in our deals, not me necessarily. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was just doing, I'm just saying, hey, you know, part of our job might just be helping some people get back to the hotels if that's an issue, you know, directions, concierge services. Yeah. Was not expecting to hear the words credit card, but, you know, yeah. I. <laughs> and again, they're talking to me here. Like I walk into Nick's and they're asking me to go to the ATM because they want cash. It's like, yeah, no. It's like, yeah, Moats is here. <laughs> we, yeah, Moats is here. We've been burned before. Do not yeah. take a check. Do not take a personal money order. Whatever you do, do not take an IOU. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, they're pulling back through the years of, uh, wait, wait, you still have a bar tab from 1997. From 90, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the president didn't get free drinks back then, unfortunately. So. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no, no. Especially, especially when certain people walked out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm just glad that Nick's, you know, that they don't carry brands like Cristal so that, you know, we could, uh, <laughs> we'd be exposed to like a four or five digit uh, bill on our way out of town. So no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I can't use that tax right off till next year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I, I suppose it is a little bit more dignified, at least than wearing like a Hello Kitty backpack, like, you know, Damian Lillard had to. This is how it starts. Don't give them any ideas. 
Do not give them any ideas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's let's maybe uh, hope that this doesn't post before then. So yeah, Phillips is out there you know, right now. Yeah, he he hears this. He's stopping at the airport gift shop to pick us up some bluey stuff or something. And uh, <laughs> yeah. at least I can you give that to my kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, but it's gonna be fun. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, like you said, meeting everyone is gonna be a really good time. I think. And always good to spend time in Bloomington with my old friend. So exactly. Looking Same forward here. to that as well. Yeah. So all of this in no small part is because of the wonderful sponsorship of our friends at home field apparel and uh big, big supporters of the back home network. Um, and we're big fans. Obviously we talk about them every show and I mean, we checked the, you know, checking it out today, you know, it's, we're at the end of winter. So you start thinking about spring wear, but you also start thinking about sometimes it's just fi- nice finding a, like a nice jacket that can work for, you know, time during the winter and even the spring i'm looking at their bomber jackets going they're sharp you know they're 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 definitely good statement pieces and like everything from home field high quality high quality of clothing that can get you that they can can do that that just looks good but it was just yeah but i'm you know with valentine's day coming up also notice they dropped a couple new lines uh that's all yeah so like if you your significant other is a is a fan of let's say the University of Kentucky or Arkansas, you know you can definitely get get those as well as I we heard some rumors about maybe yeah, IU maybe IU yeah I did see I Coming saw that on the twitters some at some point this week something might be amiss there too so mm-hmm. you know for your significant other or if she's struggling to find what to get you. Or he's struggling to find what you get you, you know, you can definitely point him out to homefieldapparel.com or homefieldapparel.com. And, oh, there's um, another new line they dropped, Mike. Uh, another one with an IU connection. Did you um, see that? No, I'm trying to guess. Wait a minute. Is it, is it Nevada? Nevada. That's so all they had yeah, Nevada. I, I did some, see that, yeah. Some sharp Wolfpack stuff coming in. So. Yeah, no, that, that is, I do like their colors. They are pretty cool. They're, the colors are pretty cool, yes, and it's uh, and definitely one that you know you can wear around the state of Indiana and be a great conversation starter, or just about any or anywhere where you found IU fans. Yeah, the, the the further on the eastern border towards Ohio, you definitely wear that kind of stuff around there. So there's yeah, especially yeah, right going along I seventy, yeah, right along I seventy, maybe make a stop at the Indiana Hall of Fame, Basketball yeah. Hall of Fame. Yep, you know <laughs> you you might get free admission. I'm not saying no, you you will not get free admission, but yeah. you know. They at the very least would be, you know, you could definitely at least get a It'd conversation over the con- with the the volunteer at the front would be more than happy to talk to you about yeah. it. So, yeah. so let's go ahead and get started. Great. Segment one. Let's talk about the sweet spot. Oh, let's see. So for this one, I'd say maybe we'll give a little bit of fair warning for this one. Uh, this episode will be a little bit more slide heavy than most of the other ones that we've done. So We'll try to not make it some kind of like John Houseman paper chase lecture. Um, we'll try to make this more of a slow walkthrough of uh, the materials and try to give people a sense of you know where those where these concepts actually came from. And as always, we'll we'll post the slides in the show notes um, afterwards so that our audio only listeners can review um, at their leisure. I would definitely encourage that for this episode. As you know, a lot of this stuff is, uh, or at least makes more sense if you see the charts visually for yourself. So I would definitely encourage people to uh, um, go jump on home, backhomenetwork.com and just look under uh, podcast X's and Joe's and you'll find the uh, the show notes for um, episode four. So 
So jumping in, uh, let's see, where to begin? Um, if we roll back the time machine back to our chat from episode one, I sp- spoke about the time I spent in the 90s and early 2000s digging into the ranking analytics on how recruiting rankings and winning uh, related to each other. And uh, back then I found that uh, basketball and football were actually pretty well aligned in terms of how the rankings and winnings were relating. Um, Elite programs in basketball like Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina, they chased after top 30 recruits and won their fair share of titles at that time. Pretty much like the uh, the football powers at that same time were doing exactly the same thing, right? FSU, USC, Florida, they were chasing five-star recruits in football and you know winning also their fair share of championships. So I guess a, a simple way to put it, um, contrasting that period and what we're going to be talking about in, in this episode is that in those days, recruiting f- the very elite basketball players, like the top 30 players, did not impose any cost on you for winning national championships. Just like football, again, chasing the best players generally made you best position for winning championships in basketball. Um, so in terms of the... Um, the programs at that time, back in again the late late nineties, uh, early two thousands, there was uh, a little bit of a stable um, split between squads that were loaded with like top thirty recruits, like Duke, Carolina, Kentucky. There's also a bit of a a secondary track at that time, where teams were actually winning uh, championships with some some mix of top end kids, but also some let's say like not quite as elite, but more experienced players. So you think of like the team that actually beat Indiana, the championship in 2002, like Maryland with that squad with uh, Dixon and, um, and Blake and those guys. And then also the Florida teams of like their middle two thousands um, with, uh, you know, Billy Donovan's like back to back championships. So with that split, I hadn't actually coined the term sweet spot at that time. That that was a concept that was not really like on my radar at that point. I just noted back then that there seemed to be two um, sort of like differentiated uh, ways in which teams were going about winning championships, like just like the stud heavy one. And then the ones that was a little bit more of a mix of studs and more experienced players. So I'll jump and uh, show us some slides here. What you see here is the kind of stuff I was actually uh, studying at that time, back in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, probably the two most common um, things I was looking at was the number of NBA players on teams. And also, and I'll show you in the second slide, also was looking at, let's say, top 100 recruits per team. So I was just taking basic counts of mm-hmm. each roster, trying to gauge, like, okay, how many NBA dudes are on this squad versus, you know, how many are how many um, top one hundred players are also in the squad? So I was kind of keeping counts and doing a lot of like comparison between those counts and like how those teams were faring. Were they going to national championships? Were they going to Sweet Sixteens? Were they balling? You know, were they bailing out of the round of thirty two? Were they winning conference championships? Were they winning you know twenty four, twenty seven, thirty games? So just doing a lot of that sort of um, um, comp- comparison study at that time. And of course, you remember Bob. I was like, 
especially in the nineties, I was like running up to your office and like, you know, mm-hmm. bringing you these reams of sheets to, uh, <laughs> to review. Show and, right. Well, and, and, and some of this also, when you talk about the NBA players on title teams, we were, you know, we, there was a mythology that you didn't necessarily have to have NBA style type talent to be highly competitive in college basketball. Mm-hmm. And in reality, you could, you know, theoretically win a national title, much like IU did in 87 with very limited NBA capabilities. Yeah. Um, and as we kind of, as you kind of delved into this more and we talked about it more and things began to crystallize nineties with Kentucky, even the teams, you know, um, Arkansas, uh, Duke's rise during that time. Mm-hmm. You may not have had a team. And when we talk about NBA players, we're not talking necessarily about guys that are NBA all-stars yeah. or even the best player on their team. These are guys who just make it to the league, which is yeah. kind of the elite of the elite of the elite. Yeah. And maybe they're not sticking there for more than a couple seasons or even a season, but they still made the league. They made the show. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I think it was just interesting, you know, when we were kind of running this stuff, um, you kind of saw this variation um, that was kind of running. I mean, there would be some years where, as you can see here, you would have uh, like, you know, like UConn and UNC, like, you know, six um, NBA dudes. And then the year prior, Syracuse had two. But of course, like you said, um, sometimes certain NBA guys might be more valuable than others. And that well, Syracuse team obviously benefited from that, uh, that particular Kurt- stipulation. <laughs> Carmelo Anthony, and this was again when we started talking more about the one and done. Yeah, you know that was a great example. There were, there, there were examples, but I mean that was the one where Syracuse and Jim Beheim wins one national title in his in his career. Yeah, Um, and that happens to be with Milo taking on a great deal of as a freshman, high productivity. Yeah. And just a high level of responsibility and leadership that he kind of has shown throughout U.S. Olympic teams and on NBA teams as well. Yeah. But that was – I and and working in that zone that they ran, you know, and that was really, I think, a big – kind of a big thing in that time. And around the same time frame, Kevin Durant was, um, was, was playing in Texas. Yeah, exactly. And he got, you know, again, Rick Barnes to a Final Four. Yeah. Um, with his teammates, obviously, but again, another example of here's a one and done who yeah. can do some damage, and it was kind of like that idea of the blended track, where you know you had some really good pieces around them. Yeah. But that one one and done player, that one highly talented, highly skilled player, who are going to be NBA Hall of Famers. Yeah. They come in, and they're able to kind of just pull it all together. And get those guys around him. Similar to what Larry Bird did at Indiana State in 79. Yeah. Um, similar to Oscar Robertson at Cincinnati in the 60s. I mean, we could go down the list of yeah. team after team after team that had that, that kind of superstar. Guy. That one guy that yeah. just kind of uh, made that made or made them or broke them. Yeah. Um, and those systems were able to work that way. Exactly. And yeah, and, and you notice like the the in the number of NBA dudes and also top hundred recruits you know also generally sort of correlated so um, so yeah it's um, it was interesting running those numbers at that time that um, it was, that was like really when I was first sort of like getting into this kind of stuff you know and 
it was like the first time you actually started to see some variations because again, basketball's changing every like, you know, five, 10 years, there'd just be these big like waves that come through. And so I remember like thinking when I first started this back in, let's say like, you know, 97, 98, it's like, oh, well, this is the way it's going to be. And then you start seeing these little like uh, waves come in that, you know, shift everything. And all of a sudden I thought, okay, well, do I have to, is this, did, I, did all my data wrong before or do I just have to be a little bit more adaptive? And so I, I did have to learn a lesson of right around the time when uh, the one and done started coming through that, okay, you just have to uh, be a little bit flexible and route, a little bit of shifting in your analysis. Well, and, and again, it's, and, and again, when you look at this, I mean, again, when we talk, oftentimes when we go retrospective, we're doing autopsies yeah. where, you know, the body's dead. Yeah. So we kind of figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. And we can somewhat give some projections moving forward as to it can go here, it can go here, it can go here. Yeah. Um, one of the big elements of this was when you look at those Florida teams and you look at who they beat that second year at Ohio State. Yeah. Or as we like to call it in Indiana, that sort of that <laughs> the guys that got the the, the guy uh, the the guy that got away. Uh, yeah. The guys. Or the, that got the, away. the two guys that got away. Right, Conley and Odin. Who, um, and and I think at that point, you know, Mata, you know, Mata coming in and getting those two to come to his to his school, getting them to a you know who and those two with their teammates again propelled them to a final game. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of that it was kind of a precursor what we're, we're going to look at and talk about, which was you had again a blended two one and dones blending with the rest of a team. And they came pretty close to securing a national championship for a program that had it really that that has been incredibly competitive, but has not been able to get over that hump into those final games. Exactly. Yeah, and I guess um, yeah, that was a big shift. I always say that you know, two thousand five was like the monkey wrench uh, in the system. It was the I guess the two thousand five collective bargaining agreement where they stipulated the one yeah. and done. And um, just just so we're defining terms here, the 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 one and done rule at that time passed, saying that uh, players had to be 19 years old and uh, one year removed from their high school graduation to be eligible for the NBA draft. So uh, before and, then, the the guys like Kobe Bryant and uh, um, Dwight uh-huh. Howard, LeBron James, you know, those guys could jump straight to the NBA without going to college. And then 2005, that all changed. Kevin so, Garnett, Kevin yeah, Garnett was another. Yeah. Moses Malone back in the seventies, and I mean when it was more of a wild west with the ABA. I mean, oh, we, yeah. were, and we were talking about one and duns. You know, we we just lost recently one of the greatest one and duns in Indiana. You know, and really bas- throughout yeah. basketball, else in Indiana history, and George McGinnis. Yeah, and it was kind of a thought of why should we have to stay in college when our families, and in George's case, his family needed needed money, yeah. and he needed to provide. Yeah, and Three, that, that was, was before the NIL was available. Well before the yeah, and yeah. and unless you went to certain other times. schools where they had a version of NIL, you know, and, and Indiana got in a little bit of trouble that in the '60s, and they kind of had to shut that down in football. You know that yeah. the, back in those. So there, there's a you know there, that's a whole different conversation, but yeah, uh, pot That'll be an episode like 14 or so. 14, yeah, it's like <laughs> yeah. NIL and it's and it's and it's weird history. Yeah, um, but. Eh, Back to that point, I guess where where, where you're kind of looking at this, which is um, that collective bargaining agreement and the idea that, and it also kind of shifts your top 100, by the way, mm-hmm. because now you're adding 10 guys or so every year that had not really been a part of it yeah. into the co- into the collegiate rankings. Yeah, exactly. And that 
everything kind of just shifts down. So if you were 35, you're more than likely going to be 45 mm-hmm. after that CBA. Yeah. And also the offer rate, the, how programs right. offer and sort of like the totem pole of offers changes. Now you're like dumping all these kids in and now, okay, you used to be like picking up off. If you're like a Krzyzewski, maybe you're offering kids down here now that one and done's come or, or whoever is at the top of the, uh, the uh, totem pole of uh, coaches are now going to like move up. And so, okay, do other coaches move up behind them? So it, it was a big shift. And it was like interesting how the, um, you know, how different programs uh, approached that change, you know, compared to the way they used to operate. Well, and I, I'd also add, add another factor to this conversation, which was that's around the same time when you had a seismic shift in who was coaching whom. Right. Um, and it started, there was this weird little sequencing that started when Matt Dordery struck out at UNC, Dean calls, gets Roy to come to UNC. I believe it was this, it was around, I think it was what, was it 04? 04, yeah. And then Roy gets that Dordery class, which is again, of highly that's Sean May's class. I think yeah. that was the class we're talking about here. Yeah. McCants. He yeah. All those kids, yeah. but it goes from there's Roy, Roy with that group. Well, Roy leaves Kansas. Well, Kansas needs somebody new. So they yeah. go in and they bring in bill self. They get him from Illinois. He moves to Kansas. Bill's still there. Uh, Illinois is out of a, out of a coach. They look up and they think, okay, well, down in Southern Illinois, there's this guy, Bruce Weber, who looks like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And was the heir apparent at Purdue, by the way. Oh, yeah, that was always that. the word. The rumor was Bruce Weber's going to go and, and he's going to Sweet 16s. He's bringing the right guys in. Weber then gets ascended to Illinois, where he actually takes him to a final game. I believe, I believe he did that against, um, did that against Carolina in 05. Yeah. And then Matt Painter takes over at Southern Illinois, spends a year there, and then Purdue realizes we don't want to get we we could be off the merry-go-round fast. Yeah, Mata moves over to Ohio State around the same time frame. Um, you start noticing, and Jay Wright I think was kind of coming in. It was around that tam- same yeah, time same frame, frame also for Villanova. Yeah. So yeah. a whole new generation, like there was a large seismic shift. Yeah, and all these guys are trying to figure out what can we do differently? What we can we bring into these programs? How can we solidify or take that step up? Yeah. And all those ones you mentioned, the funny thing is that when it comes to one and dones, that wasn't even the biggest seismic shift, even almost collectively amongst those guys. The biggest one was 09 when uh, Kentucky brings in Calipari. And that's, um, yeah, we take a, if we, uh, Jump over to our slide here. So, I mean, you got to kind of set the scene a little bit on this, that, you know, Patino leaves uh, after the 97 season to go coach the Boston Celtics. Tubby takes over, wins the national title going in the next year, spends a few years in Kentucky doing decently. I mean, very similar to, I think, Joby Hall, very similar to Eddie Sutton type results. But after Patino and after kind of the shutdown phase, the UK fan base wanted something more. They wanted something different. They went, they tried the the hot young coach approach with Billy Gillespie. He lasted two years. And at that point, UK was at a crossroads. Yeah. You had to go entirely different. And I think that they had a short list of probably two. 
One would have been Billy Donovan to try to get wrestle him away from Florida, which wasn't happening. Yeah. And the second one was to go find John Calipari out of Memphis. Yeah. They get Cal. Cal brings in that, you know, that wall class. Yeah. Among other, and, and, but the other thing was 2009, he goes on the floor of Rupp Arena. And you may have to Google the name John Young Brown, but he gave the John Young Brown acceptance speech that he always wanted to give. The campaign rally speech in the middle of Rupp Arena, 15 minutes with a teleprompter, the most famous speech ever given in the state of Kentucky, except for Alvin Barkley's last one. (laughs) And it's only because he died after he literally right after he gave it. Yeah. I mean, this is when you think about the top, you know, I mean, they may be studying in schools in 50 years, the, the Calipari speech. And he gets up there amongst Big Blue Nation. It's it's Big Blue Madness. They're they're big. They're big thing. Midnight. Yeah, they're midnight. They're Madness midnight event. madness. He's got the place packed celebrities. I don't think actually Judd was there, but she might have been. Yeah. I mean, it was close. And uh, he gets up and basically sets up the Calipari doctrine and says, if I have a choice between talent and experience, I'm taking talent every single time. Yeah. And he, at that point, said, I just lost at Memphis with a team that was really good. They were good players. But I'm at Kentucky, and we have the best horses. We have the best bourbon. We better have the best basketball players. Yeah. And we're going to hold them to a high standard. And, I mean, he talked about, you know, the privilege of the state of – I mean, it's – it's a well-crafted speech. I mean, whoever yeah. wrote the thing for him, if it was him, I but no, whoever helped him write that thing yeah. could do the an whole, inaugural. The, the family thing, right? You, oh, the, that exactly. Was part of the, the theme of the, uh, family. The fa- and we're going to get these guys in here, and we're going to win. And, and he basically said, every year we're going to compete for a national title. Yeah. That was, that was the vision. That was the doctrine. And he wasted no time in doing it because he had a team kind of waiting in the wings ready to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, we we talk about, you know, just how quickly he jumped in with both feet on going after one and dones. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2010 was his first uh, official recruiting class, you know, against Wall, Cousins, Orton, and Bledsoe. So he had four right off the bat. And then we compare that, and everyone, everyone knows today that um, – you know, that Duke is obviously a one-and-done school as well. I, I think I did a count the other day. Kentucky, I believe, has 31 one-and-dones in the Calipari era. And I believe Duke is about at 28. So, I mean, they've, they've been pretty much neck and neck for a while. But Kentucky actually jumped out to kind of a, a sizable lead in that count when Calipari was hired. I don't think – yeah, Duke didn't have for the five years prior from – the collective bargaining agreement up to 2000, like 10, 11, they didn't have any one and done. I believe. So, yeah, you see, seeing this um, slide um, by the time you get through to, let's see, 2010 by itself, Kyle Parry had four and it took, let's see, from 2010 to 2014, um, Shashetsky only took two, so you can see like Shashetsky was actually kind of slow playing his uh, one and done. Obviously, he had he had availability of those kind of players, but obviously he was uh, still focused on a much more, let's say, senior laden uh, type of roster that he was used to at Duke and you know throughout the nineties. Well, and it's it, when you when you bring up Coach K and what he was kind of he was what he was kind of doing at this time 
in a parallel track. Around the same time as the CBA, there was also the conversation around USA basketball. 2004, they lose, uh, they, they, they get a bronze medal, which in the, which was in the 12 years after the dream team was almost what really kind of pointed to something being really wrong with what we were doing to field an international team. Won't even talk about the 2002 worlds in Indianapolis and you go in and they make a, make a change by bringing Mike Krzyzewski in to coach them for the 08 Olympics using the 2006 world championships as kind of, and the idea was to create basically a, a, a central team and then coach them through. But he's learning first off, how do you coach pros? And Krzyzewski will even, has even said, you know, he, he shows a practice schedule to these guys on this 06, 08 group. And they're like, this is two guy. This is not what we do. We need time to do our individual workouts. We need time to do our yoga. You've not built in enough sleep for us. What's our diet look like? And Krzyzewski's going, what are these guys talking about? And he dawned on him that he needed to kind of shift in what he was doing. And as he began to coach those guys, I think he gained in confidence in what he could do with guys in short coaching situations. Calipari running dribble drive offense, running – and knowing that in the defensive end, he could teach him how to play defense in a certain way mm-hmm. that could ensure that schematically they're not going to do anything incredibly spectacular. You just got to get guys in the right places and let them create to score. Yeah, that was, and both of them kind of had systems and coaching coaching methodologies. Unlike a Wisconsin, where you're trying to teach if you're Bo Ryan swing offense and yeah. pack line defense. Yeah, or even Carolina sometimes where. You know, they may be running multiple offenses and defenses and trying to do different things on the floor at any given time. They felt like they could just create schematics that could work. And the other thing is you look at their two one and duns and Kyrie Irving and Austin Rivers. And those were, again, any program in the country would have wanted to get wanted to get them. Yeah. And I think in Austin Rivers case, it was like Doc Rivers said, you know, there's I mean, there's only two or three guys I'd let me coach my kid and Mike Krzyzewski is one of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you think back, the I always say that that 2012 Kentucky team seemed to, um, I think it almost set the table for what you saw yeah. throughout the last like 10, 12 years. Because you remember, Kentucky wins the championship that year. That's the Anthony Davis, uh, Michael Kidd, Gilchrist um Teague, you know that you know that loaded yeah. team, the the what the team that uh, Christian Wofford beat on yep. the the watch shot. Um, that team won the title. That was the same year, Coach K lost to Lehigh in the same bracket as Kentucky um, in the first round. So, so, and then eventually, like after that, you notice that in the obviously because the. The, the falling class was already, you know, basically spoken for. I remember at that time, like seeing like Duke's offers uh, start to spike in sort of that like one and done sector compared right. to what they had done before. So uh, maybe it's like maybe what you said, something between his international experience may have like, you know, tipped a little bit um, towards uh, some favorability towards some, you know, one and done kids. Also, maybe they're just like a FOMO kind of thing that's taken place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you literally just saw like 
anyone who saw Anthony Davis perform in the tournament that year understood that, okay, this is like having Patrick Ewing on your team. And this kid yeah. is just dominant. Like you can barely, I mean, Louisville could barely have any offense uh, within like mm-hmm. 10 feet of the basket. They're just like, you know, throwing um, like floaters all day, way over his head <laughs> to no, mm-hmm. to not much effect. So, so yeah, that's, so I think that's a good, it, it sort of sets the table for what you saw coming thereafter. And obviously after, um, uh, Duke did start loading up. They won a, the championship in uh, 2015 with Okafor, Jones, and uh, Winslow. So right. three one and duns uh, on that squad. So and and it also the one and duns are part of the story. That doesn't mean that these guys aren't out getting the rest of the five stars. Yeah, that there were five stars that were sticking around an extra year. Rarely, occasionally two. Yeah. Like that 2015 team, I believe had JJ Redick on it, didn't it? No, that would have been an early. I think it was an earlier team. Who am I mean, I if you're talking about 2015, yeah, it would have been. Uh, yeah, I think that thinking? was like a maybe Cook. I think was on that team. Okay. So yeah, yeah. I so that, I mean, but, but they did have. I think they at least had one shooter on there. I they think. they yeah. had they 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 you know they still had some some great pieces there, and it was also. But so what you're doing is you're basically you're taking 25 players that are five stars. Mm-hmm. And what would you say? In between a third and a half of them are going to want to basically going to two programs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so now the question is economics of do I fight? Do I, do I go up against these guys and fight them? Yeah. Do I look for guys that they don't want out of the five star area and go get those guys and spend the resources on it? Or do I look to find another way? Do I need yeah. to innovate? And then knowing that I can develop talent or get these guys playing together better. And we looked at the production curve last time. And we'll talk about it a little later. But can we get these guys to a level by the time they're juniors and seniors where they're going to be a contending team? Exactly. And so now that blended track starts, I guess, going into those those two yeah. that, we're, that we're talking about. Exactly. You know, I think that's that sets the stage pretty well for uh... – for what we'll talk about, uh, especially when we get into uh, into uh, segment three. So, mm-hmm. so at least for now, um, when we come back, we'll take a peek at some familiar programs um, and examine how they fared in this early one and done period. Next on X's and Joes, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Well, welcome back. Um, we're going to talk about some, again, really three programs and throw a couple others in to kind of just add some flavor, but some programs around that era that were doing some very interesting, distinct, interesting things while trying to compete with what was happening across the board in the game and doing each one, I think doing it a little differently. And um, they were more of a blended track teams in some respects. At least one of them was definitely what you would call a blended track. Um, but each one of them kind of had their ups and downs during that time frame. So I think when you look at that 2010, 2011 season seasons, you look at Butler in particular as being a program that that kind of shot a gap. And around the same time, you know, UConn, Duke, they were still, you know, again, UConn was winning one almost every couple of years in this time frame, running kind of a blended track approach. But Butler found a way out of a low, at that point, the horizon still, it was a low major conference. Yeah. Winning tons and tons of games. And figuring out that, they could compete on a national level with the players they had with a stylistic systemic way of playing. Having Brad Stevens as your head coach helps, but even once once in generation coaches, you know, aren't bad to have, but you're talking about a program before that, that implementing the Butler way, Mm -hmm. you know, with guys like Darnell Archie, a great example of a player that was, that was at that time frame before then, um, Arch was, you know, doing some amazing, you know, just they they were able to do things like go to Sweet Sixteens, for example, and be competitive against some of the best teams in the country in a six game tournament format. Um, doing a lot of, and you throw the the magic of a Brad Stevens in with a player like Gordon Hayward, and really learning kind of innovation from an offensive standpoint of we can run almost a version of continuity ball screen offense mm-hmm. that if we space the floor with shooters, we have Matt Howard as our big, eventually Austin Smith kind of factor fit, fit into that, that, that category as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can, we can also run Hayward on Sheldon Mack off of a ball screen. We have Han sitting in the corner ready for a kick out three. We have, we have a system that's really hard for teams to defend against because we can score at such a high, we can score with them at a high level and they were defensively good enough that they could they could prevent teams from just getting on those crippling types of runs. Yeah. Um, and again, they came within a half court rim out of a national championship against Duke. Yeah. Um, ran into a little bit more of a buzz cut against UConn, but that was a close game up until maybe the last six to seven minutes, the last six to four to six minutes of the game when UConn just got their separation. Yeah. But. Again, teams like Butler, and then you know, around that same time with Shaka Smart running havoc decent defense at VCU, yeah, you know, they make a Final Four around that. In, in I believe it was either I think it was um, twenty eleven. They make the Final Four, yeah, and they're running a a high energy trapping style defense, a lot of length, a lot of athleticism. Like we talked about, Kelvin Sampson's program last yeah last time, time yeah yeah. Yeah, that's and, it's, yeah. It's interesting those kind of coaches, those that have a that have a particularized type of style that almost I'll say defies sort of the 
the conventional wisdom about, you know, the kind of recruits you have to have and all that. But I mean, they're, they're definitely a little bit outliers in a certain sense that you can't just like take, you know, the rankings and, and what, what you see there, like win output and like try to like make, you know, some kind of correlation because they, they really are kind of like almost like outside of the, uh, the, the, the typical, uh, like uh, correlation slope, let's say. And, and, and you're talking about one game samples here. And yeah. so much, so many variables happen in a one game. I mean, how and and we're seeing more with more frequency two seeds beating fifteen seeds. Yeah, was it? You know, we remember when Arizona lost that movie back in the nineties, and it was almost like you oh, know yeah. the the tectonic plates had shifted. Yeah, you know, there's no way, and and now we've seen a couple one seeds go down. Yeah, uh, to sixteens, yeah. and those, and because, and, and again, because you have not just systems, but you also have players getting better and better and better across the board. Yeah. No one really stinks anymore. So those teams were able to kind of build those. Greg yeah. Marshall at Wichita State, similar thing as well, where he, again, mid-major program at Wichita State, yeah. gets him to a Final Four, nationally competitive, so much so that he actually got the, the one seed the next year after he makes the Final Four. I think it was that 2013, he makes the Final Four. Mm-hmm. 2014, he gets the one seed, Loses to an eight seed Kentucky, who then goes all the way to the final game and almost wins it. Yeah, and and so the mid major breakthroughs in this time frame are kind of, I think, also kind of showing some innovations, showing some different ways of doing things, showing the value of getting guys to play together in a certain way. Yeah, yeah, and a lot. Of, you know, think about a lot of those coaches at that time, like how hot they became, like on the open market. Remember, like. When I had the opening, like, you know, people are talking about Marshall taking that. Um, and Shaka, of course, was like, you know, like the number one uh, offer, I think, for at least like two years straight. What, like, one thing. You know, one try, great think, thing. try to remember like when yeah he got the Texas job, how much of an interval between that and his. Uh, it was a few years, yeah. but he had but, his pick of the litter. Yeah, he did. And Texas was a good situation, and it just yeah. again sometimes things just don't work out. And yeah. well, that, he was one a, tournament away from an extension. On would yeah, you say exactly. one tournament game away from an extension during the COVID year? Probably. I will say this much about Shaka Smart. I mean, it was must have been seven seven or eight years ago, and my assistant coach Mike Janikowski was coaching a, a program, a women building his own women's program. I think in D three up in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, he he developed a lot of relationships with coaches and he basically sent out kind of an all points bulletin to the guys and Shaka wrote him back to give a message to our mm-hmm. team going into serious underdogs. Shaka is great at building relationships and you find with the great ones, that's what they do. They build relationships, but, yeah. and, and they do it through coaching. If there's nobody, you know, on their way up, they remember that there's guys also trying to move up in the profession like Mike yeah. was and is still and doing a heck of a job. I might add, um, Shaka's doing some great things now where he's, you know, he'll say, look, you know, I'm going to throw, I'm going to, I'm going to show my support here because these guys are trying to do something and I can help. I can contribute. Yeah. And that's, that's the sort of thing. It, again, you kind of look at the mid majors. We, we, you know, guys that rise up in those areas. I mean, Brad Stevens ends up uh, coaching the Boston Celtics. Mm-hmm. Now he's a general manager. Granted, he likes his Dunkin' Donuts. We have them in Indiana, but I understand completely why he wants. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 that too. And, yeah. you know, he he may just like the traffic more, but yeah. I understand why Brad, he's found his place in the NBA. 
um, that being said, you know, that was, that was one grouping. And mm-hmm. then at the same time, we talked about Matt Painter a minute ago, um, getting the Purdue job. Yeah. Uh, pretty much, um, mid two thousands. And it was yeah. kind of a weird transition because Gene Katie wasn't winning. They were sub 500 for a couple of seasons under, under, under him mm-hmm. and they realized that painter had one year at SIU used Weber's recruits got, I think again to another sweet 16 and Purdue said, if we don't get this guy now, we're going to lose him. Yeah. And they already had like lists of guys, you know, that, that over the years that either got out of the game on the high college level for a variety of reasons, or in the case of Weber found better jobs so they decided to put him under a one year to almost tutelage of Katie for yeah. a year. Yeah, it's like a provisional contract, it felt like. And then Gene passed it over to him, you know, passed the literally passed the baton to him. Painter struggled for a year or two, but then he goes and he lands the baby boilers. Yeah. Um, a really good, again, high level recruit kind of those mid i would say kind of what we would call we're going again we'll talk about them being sweet spot guys um yeah it was Robbie Hummel it was Etwan Moore it was uh Jawan Johnson yeah Bill Scott, B- Scott Martin before he left Scott Martin before he left right right yeah. forgot about him yeah all those guys were between i think like Moore was the highest rated he's like 23 and i think Hummel was, uh, actually, Hummel was like the lowest. I think he was 61. But yeah, they're all between like, you know, 20, I think it was 20, 47, 43, and 61, I think was their, uh, their count and off. He, so. And like the Purdue teams that we grew up not enjoying watch play. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're fun to watch. They, were they just, are. We're not, they, we, not, we're not know, fans. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 But at the same time, you had to respect them. And that was, you know, the days when, you know, and, 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 and it kind of brought, Purdue back into that area because you know IU was beating them regularly at that in that era, yeah. and now with bringing those guys in and then also bringing in other skilled dudes that could do one or two things really well and be good teammates around this base of three players. Yeah, um, you really kind of noticed that uh, Painter was building something there. And so you look at the win lines and you see, you know, like we have a slide up with winning with the, the, the schools and their wins. And you'll notice that, you know, Butler, you know, surges those, you know, 09 and 2010, bit of a regression, little bit of a return after Painter in 2013. Painter, le- or I'm sorry, yeah, after, after Stevens leaves. But you also have the same thing with Purdue where those baby boilers were 25 win teams. Yeah. And then he kind of sh- and he'll talk about how he shifted his recruiting focus to look for more talented players. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was that odd. I, I think I've always, I think I've told you this before. Is like, let's call that their uh, that period after the baby boilers left was their uh, their blazing saddles Rock Ridge period, where it seemed like the whole <laughs> roster had the last name Johnson. Johnson, yeah. yeah. So yeah, and of course you know the nothing seemed to work on that roster. It was like, you know, it was like Anthony Johnson, Ronnie Johnson, Tyrone Johnson passing the ball around. And, uh, you know, it usually ends up with Tyrone Johnson shooting a, a floater in the lane. That was like yeah. most of their offense. 
And and I mean, at that point, you know, Painter's a motion guy, and so he starts reevaluating. He also, when bringing in A.J. Hammonds, who eventually became a decent college player, but I remember a story from his freshman year where Hammonds was so, they, they left him at the hotel on the team. Yeah. The team oh, bus left him. You, yeah, you told me that one. I remember. The team bus leaves A.J. Hammonds because he's like, kid's late. He's got to learn a lesson. We got to go. He's and a hard kid to miss. He really is. And yeah. it's like, well, did you coach? I lost my socks. It's like, whatever the excuse was. And yeah. You know, there, and so then as, as they've gone through those years where again, they go back to that 500 level, the regression kind of goes a couple of years and you start asking, is the painter thing real? Yeah. Then he found again, the Dakota Mathiases, the Carson Edwards, yeah, the Isaac Hosses, those kind of those Travion Williams eventually kind of into this, as we see this rise up, that leads to what we're seeing today. Yeah. That sort of, when we talk about roster construction, how they're kind of the ultimate Island of misfit toys mm-hmm. that, but he also, again, kind of got himself out of coaching offense. Yeah. He looked at the big picture of offense and left the details to a coordinator. Yeah. He made adjustments to his defensive schemes. He became much more flexible as a coach so he could be successful knowing the types of players he's, that, that, that he's really targeting. Yeah. I'd always but, heard that, uh, I always, I always heard that painter really hated that period of time, you know, not, not just from the law, like the, the wins and losses, but he just right. did not, he, he really loved the Bailey baby boilers and he really loved like going into that Matthias, um, Haas, you know, team that, uh, and eventually, like Carson Edwards, you know, popped in there too. So it's, yeah, that that weird in- intermediary period was just, uh, it was just really, uh, well, and <laughs> so out of, out of sorts of like what you think of of a painter team, right? And and really, it's one of those things from a coaching standpoint. Sometimes you get teams where everything looks so good on paper, and you see them, and you 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 see them for the first couple of times, going, man, they could really be something. And it just doesn't come together. And so you really have two choices, I think, as a coach, kind of the path divergence, you know, where you can stay, you can stay, you you can, you can stay path dependent where you just keep going. I'm going to bust this through their heads. Or you look at the whole thing and you kind of go more flexible, but you also look at how you're doing things. Am I getting the right dudes? Am I getting them to? Am I? Am I? Am I? Am I structuring things in a way that's indicative of the kids that I've got? And am I working through that? And to Painter's credit, he kind of surrendered his ego at the door and made the adjustments. Yeah. And not just. And really, for him, it was just going back to I want I want guys who are going to play my way, yeah. and we're going to go with that, and I'm going to find guys that have some skill to it. Yeah. Which leads us to the third program we're going to touch on briefly, which is Indiana during this time, which Tom Crean deserves all the credit in the world for inheriting the mess that he, that he received. Um, Kelvin Sampson is a, is, is a different, is a different coach today than he was 15, 20 years ago. I think in many respects. And I also think that when that team left Bloomington, when, Kelvin left Bloomington and Dan Dockage came in and kind of tr- kept things at least going for a, a few weeks. Tom comes in and he basically has to clean house. And, you know, we talked about Calipari in 2009 stepping out there, given the speech. Crean gave a similar one that was less herald, you know, less heralded, 
But at the same time, he's out there retail politicking. He's out there. He's going to almost, I mean, he's going to the barbershop, basically. Wherever this guy goes, he's promoting IU basketball. Mm -hmm. And he's doing it on the recruiting trail, too. And so he lands that Watford Holes Creek class, um, 2009. And then their wins total go from 5 to 10. Yeah. They deal with a Creek injury. They get Vic Oladipo and Will Sheehy, who were not top four-star type recruits they were yeah. kind of in that developmental recruiting yeah but the Land- depot was at least considered a high ceiling i do remember that uh it, clearly yeah. uh and, and, and people on the people on the east coast you know were saying it's like yeah right now he's i don't know he's he'd be a really good defensive guy on any d1 team if he becomes it, if he could get a jump shot and a uh and uh, a bit of dribbling he will probably be an nba player so and he got those things and that's, and then landing Cody Zeller. And so then you see kind of in year four, the ramp up, the shoot up beats Kentucky with the watch shot. Yeah. The next year, they're the number one overall seed, number one, AP number one. You see the regression and, and before we get there, but a lot of this was, you know, he's getting players that unlike painter who gets a core and guys that can do one or two things skilled around them. He's getting the best possible players for what he yeah. can get, the players that he can mold and develop. Yeah. And when he brought the movement in with Farrell, Hollowell, and uh, Mosprea and Jurkin, Jurkin, those those four guys, and said, "Okay, we've got this thing rolling." And other than Farrell, that class didn't really pan out. Yeah. But he still. You know, for every James Blackman Jr. and Robert Johnson he's bringing in, he's bringing a Jeremiah April and a Tim Priller. Yeah. <laughs> a wide variance of uh, of capabilities, let's say. And even though he ramps up and the team wins another Big Ten title in 2016, almost beats UNC that year. Yeah. By 2017, they kind of the, – the writing's on the wall, and he was dismissed at the end of that year. Yeah. And so he's running a blended track. So you have, you know, again, a system track by every measurement with Butler and even a VCU in a Wichita state where you have yeah. these coaches who are creating, we have system, true system players who are coming in. Yeah. You have Purdue that's kind of doing a similar thing, but they're, they know they're getting a talented, you know, they, they can use a talented core. And then you have Indiana continue you know, going with, okay, we, we have two and duns and guys like Zeller, one and two and duns with uh, Thomas Bryant. Yeah. But what we're really missing, but, but really we're also kind of filling in. We're trying to get create, we're trying to create a world where we have the third recruit and the 300 recruit, and we're going to get them to play together. Yeah. And, and so you can look at most every program in the country, Mike. And I think you could pretty much say pretty much everybody was kind of in that meld at that time. Yeah. And those t- trying to figure out, how to blend teams together to get them to win like they are today. Yeah. But here were three, here were at least multiple programs who could recruit at a high level and they were doing things a little differently than what we're going to talk about here in segment three. Yeah. Yeah. Though it's, it is interesting. Yeah. And I think I always remember like, you know, just before we go to segment three, like another little bullet point I remember at the time was noticing that, that class that was sort of like the the hub of that like IU team was like Watford Creek Holes like Watford was forty five Creek was fifty eight and Holes was seventy four so again just another like um, hint about like okay well where are a lot of these guys falling in terms of 
the ones that are really like either turning programs around or actually sniff significantly contributing towards, you know, national championship caliber uh, rosters. And you can look at those three years of recruiting, those four years of recruiting and know why Indiana was the number one team in the country just based on that data. Yep. And it was just getting enough. Uh, it was just that sustainability piece that just, I mean, how close Indiana was under Tom Crean is unbelievable. Yeah. So we'll move on. And after the break, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to go to the programs that were a little more successful, a lot more successful as Mike and Mike's going to walk us through that shift in who was winning and how they were doing it. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. All right, welcome back to X's and Joe's. I'm Mike Weemuth, my co-host Bob Motes. We're in segment three. We're going to discuss uh, 2016 and beyond. Um, so we're going to walk through a little bit of what happened at that time period and um, and start to discuss specifically how uh, I arrived at the uh, the notion of a sweet spot and and some of the the models that uh, you, you'll typically see me uh, post about on on pigs or social media or elsewhere. So, um, so if we go back in that time, if you remember right after Duke won the, the national championship in 2015, uh, both Kentucky and Duke went on a little bit of a, um, a rut in the NCAA tournament. Typically at that point, Duke and Kentucky were both like, you know, full scale, um, with both feet in on uh, one and done, uh, rosters or one and done heavy rosters, let me say. And as time was going by, you saw, you know, Duke lost in, let's see, the Sweet 16 in 2016, lost to South Carolina in the round of 32 the next year, Kansas, the lead eight, Michigan State, the lead eight after that. And, um, and then on Kentucky's side, of course, they lost IU in 2016, the Sweet 16. Uh, two years later, they, they dropped by K-State in the Sweet 16 and uh, lost to Auburn the next year. So basically, these t- these teams were losing um, to 
typically more experienced rosters, teams that had like some balance of, uh, of talent, but also experience. So I remember noting at the time, it seemed like there was a, a, div- a divergence was seeming to be uh, coming about in terms of the performance of one and done heavy teams after Kentucky had, and Duke had both won those early championships. So I, I started reverse engineering uh, the title teams at that time. And I started to try to contrast them against you know, large, sec- large cross sections of teams that weren't winning as much. And focusing specifically on like talent, output, experience to see like, you know, okay, well, why is this, you know, shift happening? What is it looking like? And what is probably the best way to go about building a roster if Duke and Kentucky are no longer, um, you know, able to hit the same marks as they did in 2012 and 2015? Um, so the taking a look at, the title game in 2016 is uh, maybe a good starting point. Uh, Carolina and Villanova. Um, just a, a quick disclaimer. I live very close to Villanova and I'm a little bit of a, a Jay Wright devotee. So uh, if you hear me speaking uh, glowingly about Villanova, you'll know that there is some local bias involved in that. So, but I also think he's actually pretty good. So, um, so you can see in the in the uh, the two roster samples here, uh, Villanova and Carolina both had extensive numbers of uh, top hundred players. You see, Jalen Brunson, Dan- Daniel Shafu, Ryan Archie Diakono, Chris Jenkins, Phil Booth on the uh, the Nova side, Justin Jackson, Isaiah Hicks, Marcus Page, Kennedy Meeks, and um, on down. I think. Yeah, Villanova had seven, and I believe Carolina had ten top hundred players uh, within this um, within this uh, year's roster. What's most notable about these two is that you don't see a lot of freshmen. Uh, Jalen Brunson was a little bit unusual for Villanova in that he got a, a starting role on that team, uh, which was usually not the typical thing you saw with a with a Jay Wright. Uh, especially a point guard. It's not something you typically see Jay Wright just handing uh, point guard responsibilities to a, to a freshman. Would would you say that Jalen Brunson in and of itself is always a little unusual across the board just because how incredibly skilled and talented he, he, he was? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He was uh yeah. Very unusual kid in terms of his, uh, yeah. I mean, you just watched the NBA today and yeah, he's basically lifting the Knicks uh, to where they are. And, and also ironically, OGM and, and Anobi's, you know, Helping him right along, but uh, yeah, the the Knicks are basically, I think, like uh, like a Villanova uh, alumni group now because you have um, Brunson and um, DiVincenzo, and I think at least like you know, and Hart's there too. So it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a reunion, um, you know, in the garden for uh, these uh, Villanova dudes. So, it- yeah. It didn't work out as well for Patino in the Fleet Center twenty years earlier, I might add. Twenty five yes. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> when he tried well, and we'll take Antoine Walker and the rest of the guys. We'll try this magic again, see yeah, if it works. Exactly. So yeah, I, I remember the I remember the time when when um when I was observing this, you know, and saying that the two thousand six 2016 is when IU beat Kentucky in the Sweet 16 game. And then this game happens, what, like, you know, two weeks later or whatever. Um, I, I did start 
trying to track like, okay, well, what patterns are we seeing as far as like, you know, the rankings and all that. And I remember thinking like, okay, well, the Villanova teams like this one really kind of reminds me a little bit of those like Florida and UConn teams of the past. You kind of notice like, okay, well, say Ochefu and Archie Diakono and Jenkins and, and uh, Booth and those guys. Okay. Well, a lot of them, they're not in the top 30. They're kind of like, they're kind of clustering around like the forties, fifties, sixties, seventies areas. And even um, on the the Carolina side, you saw that a little bit too. You see, like, okay, Page is just you know within the thirties, you know, at twenty eight, Johnson, Meeks, um, James, and all those guys. So again, it was uh, I was just starting to notice that okay, well, like looking back, I'm starting to like piece these teams and sort of like string them a little bit together and saying, okay, well. That old that old secondary track, which I had noticed, which was not like you know Duke, uh, Kentucky, and Carolina in the past. Maybe this Villanova team is a little bit like those old teams, and maybe this is just like the reemergence or sort of like the re. Um, I don't guess the uh, the old secondary track basically trying to um, take over and become sort of like its own like primary track, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, I was looking at this sample as, and I was really starting to like, you know, dig in the numbers even more heavily. And I remember the two, and the Carolina team was a little bit unusual in a sense that they were not a one and done program at that time. You remember, um, I believe Roy Williams has only had seven, uh, right. UNC is not as in total. only had seven one and dones in their time compared to like, again, Duke had 31 and, or Kentucky had 31 and Duke had 28. And so, uh, yeah. When, so I think like last week when I was collecting all this information for this pod, uh, our friend Bo Haynes, uh, he uh, texted me. He said, uh, yeah, I watched the last pod and uh, yeah, it was interesting. You're talking about, you know, the sweet spot and all that. But what about those Carolina teams? Like, you know, maybe like take a look at them again. Because they seem to be a little bit not like, you know, the one-and-done Kentucky model, but they're definitely not quite like the, uh, uh, the the sweet spot model either. And so, and I, I vaguely remember, like, yeah, a lot of those Carolina teams were kind of unusual in that they had kids that were in the top 30 during the one-and-done era that stayed. You know, guys that, would, right. you know, did stay until their juniors and seniors who were, like, ranked, four, you know, 15th. And you see in this, like, sample, too, I mean, like, they have – five guys in the top 30 that are not freshmen and were significantly contributing to an average championship team. And uh, Bo, Bo had said, uh, I think we're going to call that the, uh, the utopian spot. And, and yeah, go ahead. And to throw in on that, it's, yeah, it, it's utopian because it, 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 you, you, if you're looking at this, you're seeing this, that it's just, it's almost, it, it's just how stacked that UNC team was. Mm-hmm. And to add on to it, they're probably the last – they're not probably. They're the last team we've seen since then that's been as big across the board. That yeah. you look at the sizes and the lengths of these players. They were they had excellent guard play, but you had more – you just had more size, 6'7", six, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, at the wings – yeah. Versus what you're seeing in a you know right now where you see a lot of teams that are winning with six three six four six five six six, yeah, and they weren't a great shooting team from the perimeter either, if I recall correctly. What Carolina? Yeah, 
Yeah, they, they were on every night except when they played Indiana. There was that one night where they actually hit threes. And mm. yeah, I remember that night well. <laughs> so yeah, we all do. We all do. And, mm. and so that was, but, but they were, they were just built differently. And it may be that utopian moment where it's kind of paradise lost at the end, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just, um, they, uh, it, it did seem like, you know, that was sort of like the, uh, the whole ebbing of the old model. Like when guys did stay for four years who were like, you know, top end guys sort of like the Hansborough sort of, uh, type of players that Carolina always seemed to, to bring in, which was again, differentiated, uh, from what Kentucky and, and Duke were doing at the time. So yeah, what's we, um, yeah. So, just note on the the video, it's at one oh four fifty seven. Bo, I did actually mention you, and I gave the proper uh, citations, so uh, I don't expect to get any uh, lawyer notes from uh, from Louisiana about uh, improper use of <laughs> of intellectual property. So, and because we're covering a bar tab, we can't send you any money. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, don't ask for anything right for the next no. uh, week or two. Yeah. Long. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I remember. So I remember writing at that time. I think I posted something like uh, on the the pages that uh, it seemed like Jay Wright, Billy Donovan, Jim Calhoun had fashioned what I, what I called an attainable secondary model that what that didn't require you to uh, to jump in against you know the the Shishetskis and Calipari's of the world to try to you know, grab recruits to you know build a championship roster. So I, I think I actually. Said at the time, it's like you, you need to get near elite players to compete for for titles as a minimum. You don't necessarily need the elite. And as that split was going, I remember like after Nova won that second title in two thousand eight, while the rest of the one and done programs again were st- continuing to like you know um, uh, fail in the NCAA tournament and underperform. That was. I guess it would have been like what March, April, 2018. I first posted the idea of the sweet spot it was the idea that there is this sort of like secondary uh, alternative that basically falls in between both the, uh, the one and done model of programs and basically just everyone else, just like, you know, 95% of other college programs that can't get good enough recruits and just have to settle for what they got. So, um, so yeah, I remember, um, I had to show in numbers like what I was actually doing and like what, you know, how, how this actually like, you know, presented itself. So I, I spent a lot of time in that time period running through metrics around like performance based upon rankings again, because, because I did, I did start to really make that differentiation in the rankings at that time, because I was noticing that, Looking at a lot of the rosters that were um, competing for championships, you notice a lot of kids again from the 30s, 40s, 50s into the 80s. But it kind of like tapered off once you get into like, you know, past the 80s and 90s into the hundreds. You just saw like a steep decline in the number of guys that were competing on national championship teams ranked in like the hundreds, 125s, 150s, and so on. On the other end, I saw that the the rate of kids leaving early really seemed to taper off around the thirties. And so I figured like, okay, maybe just like identifying and sort of solidifying a zone 
that differentiates, you know, this sort of like middle area between the one and dones and the everyone else. So that's when I first, you know, kind of placed sort of um, these uh, guideposts at 3380 as, you know, just a starting point. Again, it doesn't mean that like, you know, when a kid's rated 29, that, you know, it's impossible for them to be a sweet spot kid, or if they're rated, 80, you know, 81 or above. Again, when I talk about the rankings in terms of, um, like using like, you know, these ranges, it's really about concentrations versus like guarantees. Uh, you, you know, the sweet spot kids that, you know, I've heard other people say, well, that, you know, the sweet spot is 30 through 80. It's not technically exactly right. It's 30 through 80 is where you find the most sweet spot players. It's not as, but it's not exclusive to them. You can find sweet spot players just about anywhere, but generally speaking, if you're trying to target players that are most likely to compete for national championships, that zone is really where you need to be shooting. And I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about, you know, right. up here. Um, so, yeah, I, ju- I first jumped into the 2016 recruiting class and started to do some data polls on performance. And the first thing I looked at was the box plus minus, uh, the peak scores. And uh, if you remember from episode three, we talked about box plus minus. It's basically just a, um, it's an output measure of points scored above the average player over the course of a hundred possessions. So it it measures off, it measures offense and defense. Yes. It is a, it's a cumulative uh, between offense and defense. So it is a total measure of uh, performance for players. Exactly. And can you again, go through the ranges real quick on that? Like what, what zero meant represents and then, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, zero is basically the, the absolute middle average player in college basketball. So if you take all the college basketball players, you know, you uh, put them into a bucket and zero will be the, uh, theoretically like the middle performing player. So the measure is basically above and below that player. And so, um, typically, if you have a rating, let's say, of like, you know, one, two, or three, typically that's like a decent, solid, but not great basketball player, obviously. You start to become a good, you know, actually influential player once you get to like, you know, four and five. And by the time you get up to like, you know, seven, eight, nine, now you're getting into like real nationally competitive uh, players. And you get towards like, you know, 10 and above, you're talking about like, you know, all American you know, type candidates. So that's so, kind of giving a sense of the scale of like, you know, what we're, uh, we're referring to. So as we're going through this and, you know, for those listening, you know, the one through thirties are at 7.15, 6.71, 31 through 80. So they're almost equal. And then that almost a four on that 81 to 200, those 81 to 200 are still good players. Yeah, exactly. What we're talking about though, are players who are, what you would look for in a national championship roster. Mm-hmm. So for like, if I'm sitting at Minnesota and I get a bunch of 100 guys and there are BPMs of, you know, ranging from two to seven, I might be feeling like that's maybe one of our better seasons we've had in the last 20 years. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you, um, any, again, any player over zero is technically, you know, above average, average, you know, in terms of all of college basketball, it means like, you know, even down into like the, the lower conferences. But yeah, what we're, we're discussing here is just like uh, national, national, like the scope of national championship uh, level uh, competition. 
I, I think the reason, and the reason I'm asking this is because I want. I, I think sometimes when I when we're when you and I both interact with fans, it's this sort of thing of all or nothing. It's a follow the shoe, follow the gourd again. Yeah. Where if you're not getting these guys, you're going to be like sub 500, and the the program's going to fall apart in front of you. Yeah. When in reality, sometimes those are the guys in those kind of regression years a couple times that pull you into the tournament. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and even with, I mean, again, these are averages. What we're talking right. about in this scale here um, is, you know, the, the one through thirties again. Yeah, they're 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 up at seven point one five. That's uh, very. Those are obviously very elite scores. Uh, the thirty through eighties are like at six point seven one, just barely behind them. And the 81 through uh, 200, they're down at 3.93. So there's obviously a very like steep differentiation between like the again the 80s uh, to 200s versus the 30s through 80s. Um, yeah, there are great players in this range. Um, in this 2016 sample I drew, um, in the sub 80s, uh, Carson Edwards is part of that far right bar. Uh, Grant Williams from Tennessee is also in there. So if you, if you dip down to any, um, uh, recruiting class list, you will find every year there's going to be like two or three kids that are just absolutely awesome players that will like be playing in the NBA and having a, a big contribution and possibly being like all American candidates in college basketball. The problem is it's just, again, it's a concentration issue. There's just more concentration of better players numerically in these upper echelons than what you find down there. So, so like you said, Bob, it's like typically like fans will say, well, what about this one player? Mm-hmm. This one player wasn't ranked up there. How could you, you know, say that you, know, you shouldn't be recruiting in there? We never say that you shouldn't recruit like below that scale. Frankly, even if you're doing your best job recruiting, you're probably going to have to have, take at least like three or four sub 100 players, even if you're at your best, because you just can't have a roster full of like, you know, top 100 players anymore. That's just almost impossible. But from a probability standpoint, what we're talking about, again, is just like the performance measure of getting enough players that you actually start to look like a national championship roster. And obviously there's big advantages to taking these upper end kids versus the kids at the lower end. So yeah, in this in this measure also, I use peak average, which means that that's like the top BPM score for players who achieved that in their best year of their career. So again, this is not like at like the average over the total of their career, just like the number one best score they had. You know, if they had a great senior year, okay, I took their senior year score. They had a good junior, the best was their junior year. I took their best junior year score. This is a little bit easier to do because you know, if you do averages, it actually makes the scale even tip a little bit more uh, against like the sub hundred, you know, sub eighty kids because you know a lot of them were actually like negative BPM. So, uh, so I, I try to create a scale that at least gives some sense of okay, this is where these kids are ending up. Not as because again, a lot of kids won't even be playing much when they're starting out. So I want to give a sense of like the uh, the development of where these guys were kind of topping out at. If we go to the next, uh, looking forward into the um, this next slide. So if you if you think about like what we just talked about, the range of you know like national championship starter averages, uh, you know what we'd said before is 
oftentimes around seven to nine range collectively. So like sub eighties, again, you know, they're kind of way below the scale at, you know, 3.9. Um, so they're kind of way off um, the pace of what you would need to participate on a national championship roster. So that's sort of the strike against like the sub 80 recruits on the flip side is the experience question. So this is a, uh, so this is a 2016 recruiting class by their seniority. Basically, did they make it to their junior senior year? And in this scale, you see that the one through thirties only made it to their junior senior year 20% of the time. So only one in five players made it. That means 80% of those players were jumping out early. And with the one and done, obviously, is uh, one and done role having a big role in that. The 30 through 80 kids were staying until their last two years, 78% of the time. And then the uh, the uh, 80s to, uh, you know, up to the 200s were uh, at 82%. So, so we pretty much have an 80-20 rule here in practice. Yeah, a little bit of Pareto distribution, exactly. It's, a, it's, um, it's yeah, yeah. It, it, and also, if you look at the scale, if you look at the numbers through time, you'll typically see like you know this like re, um, so reappearing on different uh, on different studies that I've done. So yeah, it, this is held constant pretty well. The not the one through thirty number changes kind of rapidly sometimes. I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of like you know waved a lot depending upon like what well, M- NBA GMs are doing at the time. And what, what's in the class? I mean, you, you may oh, yeah. not have yeah. I mean, or what's on the international scene? I mean, you're talking there are yeah. what 64 draft spots or six you know 32 NBA team 64 spots. You know, yeah. not, not everybody. You know, and you're talking 30 players. <laughs> All of these guys who are going one and done, I think, are expecting to be drafted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. What was the number I was looking at the other day? Is that uh, yeah, just just the the number of players that used to be drafted uh, back in like two thousand nine versus today is like quadrupled. So it, it used to be like you know just like a handful. It was like you know five or six, and now it's up to like you know twenty plus. You know yeah. every year of one and done. So again, that's a big part of like you know why you're seeing this like distortion taking place because. Over the course of like time, if like you're taking out an extra, you know, dozen, dozen and a half players than you were, let's say, ten years ago, over the course of four years, that's an extra what, you know, you know, mm-hmm. three or four dozen players that uh, they're not going to be making it to their, you know, junior senior year. So, right. so again, like this whole like uh, supply and demand of like players at these different tranches is uh, kind of making well, itself appear in the in the tournament like that. And you, and, and you also, again, even with the one and done, you have kids like Blake Wesley um, and um, who was a one and done. Also, Trey Young is probably the best example of someone who was further down the rankings. Yeah. So you get that variance too, but those are, again, those are more exceptional than they are by rule. Exactly. Yeah. If, if we look at the impact here on um, on the, like, why this is a problem, let's say, for, uh, for teams recruiting heavily in one and done area, uh, this slide here indicates the 2017 to 2023 national title starters and the percentages that they had on their squad in terms of their junior and senior year participation. And in this, you see that 
basically all the teams are at least above 60%. Again, looking back in the one and done slide, you saw that it was just 20%. So at a minimum, the teams that are winning a national championship are three to four times more likely to have players that are staying until their junior, senior year. So that's a, a huge distortion between title winning teams and and sort of like the one and done pool. And I just want to throw in real quick that sure. when you start talking about NCAA teams that are winning national championships, you look at minutes distribution by the time you get to the final game. And I can't really think of a time where the bench was really being utilized at a really high level. You may yeah. get one player here or there, but you're running your five starters 30 minutes plus more yeah. times than not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's also just like, yeah, the, the advantages to seniority, I mean, aside from just like the, you know, the physical, the physicality part of it, obviously, just like the mental facet of it is that they're just more poised oftentimes they're more experienced. And as why you saw so many times in those, uh, those late tournament teams with Duke, with Kentucky failing against teams that, you know, again, had just as much maybe physicality weren't as maybe as skilled, but, uh, you know, we're able to sort of like D them up with uh, more experienced and, and uh, you know, <laughs> at, le- at least uh, within the same neighborhood of athleticism as uh, some of those teams. Better connected, more, more exactly. things at the table. You know, they, they're, they're, the nuances of reads are easier when you have, when you play with guys for a couple, three years, goes back to the international question where it's like you throw a bunch of NBA guys out there versus a bunch of international guys, that international team may have played together a lot longer. Exactly. And so that was that's one of those issues that you run into that we've seen over the last well, really since the seventies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so you know, if you think in terms of the numbers, like the um, you know, the seventy percent of the title winning starters uh, are staying until their junior and senior year. And that's a near perfect match to the seventy eight percent of the thirty through eighty range kids that were staying until their junior senior year. So you see this like mismatch developing, you know, the top 30 kids are out of step with winning titles due to a huge experience gap. And then the sub 80 kids are likewise out of step due to a talent performance gap. But the 30 through 80 kids are a near match statistically for what you see on uh, national championship rosters. And then when you actually go through the, um, you go through the actual list of players, just go on like um, uh, sportsreference.com check out the national championship winning teams and just look at, you know, the roster and you can see like their RSCI number, their ranking. And you see how many times you'll notice that, okay, there's a kid that's rated 40. There's a kid that's rated 60. You'll just see this like pattern develop, uh, especially after you get, you know, into the last like, you know, 10 years or so of uh, the teams that are winning championships are just loaded up with these middle range kids. You know, individual level, um, that's, uh, what we're showing you here is just like, you know, what it looks like just as an individual player. It's basically the same thing you see with the team. Uh, we used a similar slide back in our last uh, episode, but this is, uh, Jared Butler. He's, uh, I, I guess you would say, you know, kind of a representative, uh, example of a sweet spot kid. He's, you know, kind of rated around the eighties, nineties area. He was uh, on the Baylor's championship team in 21 in 2021. Um, and the sample, you see the first year starting point, 
against the one and done average, he is below theirs. He's at about like a 3.9. The the one and done BPM average is typically around just above six. So I think it's like 6.15. And then the the sub 100s, typically you'll see them down at like, you know, zero, one or two. And so you see the sweet spot kids are above the 100 kids as a freshman, but they're still below the one and done kids in terms of their output performance as freshmen. But the advantage, obviously, is that as time goes by, the one and done kids leave. Their development stops in college because they're only there for a year. Their development continues in the NBA. The sweet spot kids, their development still happens at their school. And because of just the the typical slope of – basketball development for players from freshman to sophomore, especially, but as sophomore to junior and so on. Um, the, the talent advantage of the one and done top 30 type kids is basically overmatched by the experience advantage of players ranked just that one step below them. You know, a kid ranked in the 30 through 80s on average will generally be a greater benefit to NCAA title winning than a top 30 kid you know, top 30, one and done type kid due to that maturity advantage. Again, the, 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 the one and done players, the top 30, they will typically over the course of their career be better basketball players. But again, they're being a better basketball players in the NBA and they're not staying around long enough to actually become the kind of players you see typically on national championship teams. The sub 100s, again, just for the most part with few exceptions, just can't quite get up to uh, the performance level of those sweet spot kids um, because, you know, just of the talent uh, disparity, despite staying just as long, if not longer than some of the sweet spot kids. As we're looking at, and again, as we're kind of going through this whole, this whole process, it kind of reminds me as well that when you start talking about those eight, you know, those, those juniors and how many of them also after a national, like Adama Sadango comes to mind last year for UConn jumping to the draft. Yeah. Um, and and right now also, you know, one thing that we're going to be looking at also, I know Mike's definitely in this, I think about it a lot, how this COVID year is impacting the junior year. Oh, yeah. You know, where you have now super seniors for the first time in college basketball. And a year from now, things could be maybe not, they, they could be a little or a lot different depending on those guys matriculating out. Like yeah. that Galloway legal class that's going through right now, the Zach Eady class, you know, the question is what happens to them after this year going into next? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, it's like, it has thrown like this huge weird air bubble into the normal process of players coming in and going, but also just their development and the, and teams sort of like having some reliability in their, their staffing. Well, and and I mean, from a developmental standpoint, some of these teams and programs lost, some of these players lost almost a, you know, not a year, but they lost a significant portion of travel ball time. Yeah. You know, as we're coming through this group here. So the question about talent regression is throughout the game, you know, trust me when we're talking about fifth, sixth and seventh graders, you know, we're seeing some differences, some stuff that's just not like five years ago, I've got kids who are good still, but they're not as game experienced and maybe not as complete as they were when I when when, when I was working with five seasons ago. So we're all having to adjust at every level of the game. Exactly. Yep. No, it's uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to the whole 
the COVID bubble, you know, finally bursting and getting bursting. back to some degree of uh, of nor- normalcy in our uh, in our <laughs> in our classes. And, and then we're going to start talking about nil and the portal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like okay. well, yeah, we can only hold yeah. we can only manage so many of these like. Uh, <laughs> these dramatic variables at once. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to COVID uh, bubble ending. ending. Yeah, ending. exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, we look on some of these last slides. The, so I, when you plot these on like an X, Y axis of, you know, box plus minus average and uh, the experience of the, of the players, you'll, you'll start to see like this, um, this pattern develop where the one and dones and the sort of like everybody else bucket are clearly differentiated in terms of like where they're ending up on this, uh, on this uh, graph. If, and I've always compared this to, um, to like a bowling alley. Cause like one day when I actually was printing this stuff up, I, I, I was approaching the table at like a 45 degree angle from uh, the chart I noticed like looking from like the bottom left-hand corner straight up to the top right, I noticed that the pattern was that like, if you saw the sweet spot, you know, again, is the, is the sort of top right hand target on the left-hand side and the right-hand side, you basically had the two gutters, let's say mm-hmm. and the left gutter, you could say is like the, the one and done kids or the, you know, the top, you know, the top 30 kids that don't stay very long. These are the kids that obviously are very talented, but they lack experience. And you see, like, you know, again, their box plus minuses are, like, way spiked up, way above um, sort of like the everybody else bucket. But, you know, they're, they're like, you know, eights, nines, you know, sevens, you know, sixes, you know, depending upon, um, you know, like where they uh, – Sort of like, you know, depending on the year and like the, um, you know, like the circumstance, so like Anthony Davis, again, like the reason Kentucky won that championship, Anthony Davis was like so unusual compared to all the other one and dunks. He was like a 17. Whereas I said before, like, you know, a lot of the other kids are, you know, much lower down, like, you know, six, seven, like eights. Okafor, same thing, right? I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okafor, Winslow, and oh, who was there? I think it was like Cook, maybe. Um, yeah. They were all 10 plus. They were all averaged uh, 10 plus. I remember that was like, that was sort of like the statistical outlier with that group is that, yeah, their three one and dones averaged above 10, which is, you know, which is really good. So, so yeah. And unfortunately, I think for Kentucky and Duke, like, you know, that once, once you get like a class like that, you almost feel like you're like, uh, your Captain Ahab, you know, chasing the whale, you know, for the rest of your career, trying to like recreate that, you know, same class. And unfortunately yeah. those are, those kids are not as often, you know, uh, showing up, but uh, you know, on the recruiting classes every year. And and just put it this way, like, again, how many guys playing in the NBA, how many guys make it to the hall of fame? Yeah. I mean, it's, we tend to kind of look at this from a standpoint, again, all or nothing at all, but there's varying degrees across the board. And yeah. the one and done's fit that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So I'm thinking of the, you know, the, the left gutter, right gutter, you know, bowling alley analogy here, the sweet spot obviously is kind of where the head pin where you're shooting for. And if you were just to prove that we're not lying, if you were to do this yourself and started plotting this stuff out and using actual starting, let's say like starting five, 
um, average examples of uh, box plus minus. Basically, the starting five averaging up all their box plus minuses coming up with a score. Um, this is what you see. Again, this looks pretty much exactly like what you um, saw on the previous slide. Basically, the top left-hand side, the one and dones, the bottom right-hand side, the right gutter, everyone else, and sort of like right smack in between them up the top right-hand corner is the sweet spot. And you see with the sweet spot, the, the kind of teams you see up there, these are some of the most recent national champions, Baylor, Nova, Carolina, Kansas, Virginia, Yukon. The one-and-done column you see over, again, separated from where they are in terms of experience, Duke, UK, um, and some of their most recent teams. And everybody else, I just I threw in like a sample of like a lot of the Big Ten teams from last year. You see like Michigan, Northwestern, IU, who are, again, as experienced as the sweet spot guys, but they're below them on the performance scale um, but relative to the champions. It's- funny when you look at this because i'm looking at these big 10 teams going and you look at teams that are talking that 81 to 200 Mm -hmm. and you look at where those teams are in this and they're pretty much right there where they should be if that may i mean when you talk about the wisconsin's and northwestern's the iowa's those teams are not at i mean because of it kind of just again fits the the formula perfectly that you know your team be you know where that average bpm might be sitting around four and you got a bunch of 150 guys on your team yep exactly yeah and it's um yeah it's interesting i remember like i remember when i first started running this data just thinking like okay well yeah i jumped on online and sort of like shared it with everyone and i but i remember specifically like i had sort of like i guess i had like two thoughts Specifically, like with Kentucky, like, you know, my my analytical side was like, this is really bad for Kentucky, you know, and they should stop what they're doing right away. Then my IU fan side was like, this is fantastic. I hope this never comes to an end. Keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> when your opponent is drowning, yeah. throw them at anchor. Yeah, it was the Carville's line. Yeah, yeah exactly. the James Carville line. Yeah. Throw them at anchor. <laughs> throw them at anchor. Yeah, yeah, that I was actually – like years ago, I was like thinking maybe I should go on Rep Rafters under like an assumed name and just like encourage it, saying you know, guys, I've done this amazing research, you know, on like the one and dones and what Calipari is doing is like absolutely amazing. We should not only should we not like you know stop doing it. I think we should just go ahead and have like a full you know Logan's oh, wow. Run version of roster construction, just like. <laughs> As soon as you get done with your freshman year, I'm sorry, son. You know, we don't allow sophomores at Kentucky. So please step into the portal on the right. If you can buy a case of beer, you're no longer allowed at the University of Kentucky. You go at the portal. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of looking forward to. I was like plotting these every year. And so I just yeah. like keep like adding more and more, but yeah, it's, it's just interesting that it's been kind of pretty consistent. Like you just have these three plots. I mean, obviously there are teams that sort of like come in the middle, but you know, if we're talking about like a heat map, this pattern is pretty much what you'll see. Um, either like looking back and, and compared to like what you see in like the roster rankings and things like that. And, and again, the asterisk on all this is something weird can always happen. Yeah. When we talked about UK, you know, being differently built this year, mm-hmm. and can't if they can find a way to win six games, or 
what if Florida Atlantic hits an extra shot sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it, something out there can happen just kind of like the long shot horse wins the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, that's what I say about like, you know, this kind of work is that it's, there's no, you know, there's no consistency to it over time. I mean, like I always say that all these things that we, I, I find that I study, it's like, okay, you've got like 10 years of whatever this is. It'll be like this for a period of time, but then, you know, the next, the next wave is coming and it's going to like, you know, turn your analysis around. So now you're pointed this way and you have to start like analyzing, you know, these variables instead of the ones you used to. And we have to sometimes not focus too much on the bright, shiny object because you're talking in 10 years, you're talking 40 final four teams. Some weird stuff's going to happen. Yeah. And it has. And yeah. the point is you just can't look at the bright, shiny object, see it as the trend. Now you can look at it and say, how did that happen? Yeah. And you can look at a shock of smart, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, or you can look at what Dusty May did at, at Florida Atlantic with the bracket breaks, and yeah. and that's just a tournament. We're not even talking about the weirdness that happens during a regular season, or uh, you know when you have Evansville going into Rupp Arena and beating a University of Kentucky one and done team. Yeah, you know, exactly. yep. that stuff just happens. Yep. Yeah, sometimes yeah, sh- yeah, Dusty Shock and all those guys. It's yeah, it's those Battle of Agincourt coaches mm-hmm. beating the Verdun coaches. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and this um, this, this uh, final slide sample, um, I, 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 I try to sort of like measure looking now and looking back in terms of the, the participation of uh, top 30 players on uh, title rosters. And so, again, going back to those times where we're talking about um, – around before 2016, this sample is 2009-2012. Uh, the four national championship teams uh, starters uh, during that period, 16 of the 20 starters were top 30 rated players. So you like you know, from the Carolina, Duke, UConn, and Kentucky teams, you see like Hansborough, Shire, Singler, uh, Walker, Araki, uh, and then the you know all the Kentucky kids from the twelve squad. So again, eighty percent. If you think about this as like a um, a sort of barrier to entry, like you know where are you having to get your players to win national championships? You look at this, it tells you, man, if I'm not getting a majority of kids in the top thirty, I'm kind of screwed. Now, if you go forward to today, and where were we set now? The top 30 rated starters on title squads from 2019 to 2023 is now zero. So in that time period, what we're talking about before, there's literally like a 180 that has you know, taken place you know, by the basketball gods saying, okay, before you had to have these top 30 kids to even have a chance to compete for a national championship. Now, not only do you not need to get them, there may actually be a penalty for taking too many of those kids. And that's again, where we talk about, you know, the, the influence of the one and dones teams taking on too many kids that don't have quite the, the right balance of experience and talent. And those upper tier squads really suffering again in the tournament against those uh, teams that do have a little bit better balance uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the talent and maturity. 
So in other words, if Dean Wormer is looking at this and looks at Plutarsky, he says 0.0. <laughs> and, and I'm just thinking, thinking about, you know, looking at, and then looking at, um, you know, looking at Flounder and saying, inexperienced and talented is no way to go through life, son. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, let's maybe re- reevaluate it. And it, but again, it just shows how dynamic this is, shows how much yep. things have changed. And it also shows how other programs have innovated their way through this, through recruiting, through development, through whether it's system, whatever they're doing, you know, getting kids to stick, you know, basically getting the high, riding that line of the highest level of talent yeah. you can ride with staying the longest period of time. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And when we, uh, Come back. We will. Uh, we'll go ahead and uh, shut this conversation down and uh, talk about uh, our next episode here on X's and Joes. All right. Welcome back, Bob. Any final thoughts? Um, going to be great to see you again. I would just caution everybody again. Uh, looking at this, come to your own conclusions. Obviously. Um. I think it's incredibly hard to look at this and, and not come to some conclusions, but at the same time, it it's, it's important to realize that you can also be successful and be good at what, and again, with the portal, especially the one team, you know, can teams be melded together pretty quickly. Yeah. It's going to be something we're going to be watching very closely. So. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, the, the one question I probably get most asked about, like the this you know this notion of the sweet spot, and you know what what teams should be doing in terms of you know building championships. Probably the one big um, sort of <laughs> the one big dragon that's you know like sweeping across the plane to uh, <laughs> destroy all this uh, research is going to probably be the portal. Um, well. And in terms of, I will say like destroy the research, but I would say maybe um, it's going to become a second large tributary into the, I guess, the pool of uh, what we consider the sweet spot. Again, the sweet spot is not like a fixed entity. It's like, again, it's ever evolving and it's going to be, um, I would say that I could see the portal players in five years, I'll make this prediction now. In five years, we'll be having a sweet spot conversation, and the overwhelming majority of players that will be in that in this national championship conversation might be portals. And and I think it also goes to you know you think about the thirty through eighties and the dilemma that they're that they're going to be going through of do I wait my turn maybe in a high major contending program or do I try a different, you know, maybe I go to a mid major and that that's my kind of thought here of, and maybe try to just test my chops so I can at least keep playing. And then Mm -hmm. I can transfer into a program that's more my fit. If that makes sense. Now, NIL factors into this as well, because if you're getting paid a nice NIL package to kind of sit the bench and learn the game, you might be more apt to want to stay at one of those higher, uh, one of those high major programs. But the other question is then how, you know, it's going to, it's going to require some, it's going to require coaches who know how to manage players well. Yeah. 
guys like Mike Woodson, guys like Matt Painter both know how to do that in different ways. Um, I think the days of coaches just looking at a kid and saying, you're mine, sit, you know, you're going to, you know, I think that the, the, the massaging is going to be different. And I also think that for families, for agents now more and more, uh, personal trainers, AAU coaches, the networks in and around kids, the expectations are going to have to be a thing of let's, we need to probably manage that a little differently. And maybe it does come down to if you think, well, again, let's look at Blake Wesley as a great example of this. He picks Notre Dame. Notre Dame picks him. He goes one and done. Yeah. It was a good fit for him. So on that note, um, we'll look forward to seeing hopefully a few of you this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't order too much on the bar tab that we're apparently being to ask to, uh, to set up. Hey, listen, I, I'd love to be able to wear a false mustache, but I'm already kind of screwed. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll give you a wig. Don't worry, Bob. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I got that Les Nesman pulling up the curl. I mean, I just see it going. So, uh, again, special thank you to Bob Thompson for the music and sounds that you hear on this show. And John Ringer of Ring Design, that's 2Gs.com, for designing the logo and the artwork that you see. Great. Yeah, and our next episode of coming back, coming up, probably about two weeks, uh, Bob and I will be discussing, discussing rivalries, um, um, where they come from, how they operate, and uh, what makes them so much fun in college basketball. So this, uh, this endless conversation was brought to you by the Back Home Network. Be sure to check out all the great BHN content, including Assembly Call, Doing the Work, and Crimson Cast on YouTube and at backhomenetwork.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Weenith. And I'm Bob Motes. Have a good one, everyone. Take care. Have a great one, Dave.